Hello, everybody. Welcome to Wide Wonders Get on the Bus podcast, where we try hard, very hard, every day to think lightly of ourselves and deeply of the world. Our mission is to talk about addiction and mental injury stigma. Why? Because stigma holds everything back. Stigma is everywhere, everybody. It's in our policies, it's in our doctor's offices, it's in individuals, and especially it's in those suffering from addiction and mental illness. And it holds everything back. It holds back needle exchanges. Even though for decades, studies have repeatedly found that needle exchanges help prevent the spread of diseases such as HIV and Hep C that can spread through use use syringes while not increasing overall drug use. It holds back widespread adoption of addiction medication, despite all the empirical evidence that it is effective. Medications are considered the gold standard of care in opioid addiction, yet they're rejected because people addicted to drugs and those who treat the addicted are still stigmatizing the process of addiction medication. It holds back context for how people end up becoming addicted. It holds back people understanding the difference between dependence and addiction. It holds back family healing. And so importantly, stigma holds back compassion and empathy, which are essential ingredients when helping somebody heal from addiction and mental illness. On the show today is Pablo. Wow, Pablo. Amazing to meet you. We, we met Pablo at an RV resort where he was working. We just struck up a conversation. We started talking. And the next thing you know, he revealed himself to us. And I said, Pablo, will you please get on the bus? And lucky for us, he agreed. Thank you, Pablo, for your courage. You inspired us with your vulnerability. You let yourself talk about things that a lot of people just won't talk about. We honor you and everything you've been through. Here's to the future, yours. May you continue to do great things built on your experience that you had in Desert Storm and as a firefighter in New York City. You are an example of what it is to be incredibly strong and incredibly resilient. And I can't thank you enough for your honesty. I hope you all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Here's Pablo. For me personally, I, I mean, I, I came from an abusive family. So born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Yeah. And um, many members of my family were alcoholics. My mom, my dad, my brother. Um, so for me personally, um, it was difficult because I'm the youngest of eight. Of seeing everybody else, six yeah. sisters wow. and one brother. So... Um, wow. Growing up in that environment, uh, it was it was a very abusive environment. Uh, my dad was very much involved in drugs and alcohol, and he was a musician, mm-hmm. um, and he was well known for that. So for me personally, I saw things that just amazes me, yeah. which kind of set the stage for me when it came to alcohol and drugs, for example. I never used drugs. I don't drink alcohol. I drink a, a wine every now and then. I don't drink beer. I don't drink hard liquor. Um, and the reason why is there's two major reasons why is what I experienced growing up and witnessing, seeing 
family members on the ground in the house, so drunk that we had to pick them up and carry them. And here I was, five, six years old, holding a leg. Right, yeah. You know, doing your part. Doing what's going on. Yeah, what is this? Yeah, exactly. Uh, But the other thing was, as a kid, I was about uh, 11 or so, and I was thirsty, and I was sitting in my in my stepdad's vehicle at the time, and uh, summer day, he had this bottle, I don't know what it was, it was clear, it was small, I grabbed it, I drank the whole thing, uh, didn't feel anything, uh, no warmth, no nothing, I, I remember it being warm in the sense of it wasn't cold, right. I was looking for something cold. A few minutes later, he realized when he got back in the car what I had done, yeah. and rushed me to the hospital, I had oh, no wow. idea I drank a wow. fifth. A fifth of uh, Bacardi, a whole bottle, fifth bottle of Bacardi straight. Uh, So obviously I had alcohol poisoning. Yeah. Was in the hospital for about a week and a half. Wow. They put my stomach out. And And how old were you at that time I was about 11. 11, yeah. Yeah, 11 or 12. Yeah. And and it's like, I remember that every single day. Wow. When I'm I'm around people that drink, you know, and and I'm like, from that day forward, I never, ever understood why. Yeah. Anybody would want to get drunk. Yeah. Um, so personally, myself, I just when I when I joined the military, it was funny because guys would be like, "Hey, you want a beer?" And I'm like, "No. What do you mean I don't want a beer?" Yeah, exactly. You yeah. wear the man who doesn't drink. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> you can't trust that man. Exactly. Yeah. But what helped me in the military was I was a medic, and being a combat medic meant that I had to earn the respect of my Marines yeah. and the people that I was taking care of. Right. And once that, once we got over that and they knew that I would do anything for them and they would do anything for me, exactly. then they knew, hey, Doc doesn't drink. Doc doesn't drink. You know, and they didn't want Doc to drink. That's right. <laughs> it was better you didn't. Right. So, for them. Yeah. So when I went out and we went to a club or whatever and I yeah. was with my guys, it was like, hey, Doc gets a coffee or orange juice. Or ginger ale. It was, it was three things. Orange juice, ginger ale, or coffee. <laughs> uh, and and they ordered it for me, so it was it was kind That's, of funny. That, uh, is, that is interesting. But, but I'm the one at 2 o'clock in the morning picking the drunk up off yeah. the, my Marine, picking yeah. him up, taking him home, you know, throwing him in bed. And, yes. And then the next day... Yeah, it continued. Out, your, your family and then yeah. what you did there and carried right over into... Exactly. Very interesting. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So... So I've always, for I've had this. I think hatred is a strong word, but I can't mm. seem to find a word equivalent that would describe how I feel about it. Yeah. Other than to say I hate. Yeah. Drugs. I hate the use of drugs. I hate drug dealers. Yeah. I have a serious issue with people that sell drugs or or things that not yeah. the person who's using it. Yeah. The person who's selling it. And uh, many a times when I lived in different neighborhoods and I saw, uh, I'll give a perfect example. I was in Oakland, California, mm. and I was stationed at the Oakland Naval Hospital. Okay. And this was going back probably, I'd say, 80, well, I was there for the earthquake in 89. Okay. When they had the 7.1 earthquake yeah. in San Francisco the That's day right. of the World Series. That's right. I was watching the game. October 17th, 1989. Yeah. I was watching that game. I remember and I was stationed there. I was part of a rescue team at the Naval Hospital in Oakland. And I was on staff there. And uh, my my team responded to the bridge that collapsed. Yeah. The Cypress structure, which is a mile and a half of concrete bridge. Yeah, that's right. It was a double-deck bridge yeah. that connected oh Oakland to the Bay Bridge. I've been on it. Collapsed. Yeah. And um, I was fortunate and blessed 
to be there helping to do rescues with the teams that were there in 89. But while I was living in Oakland, Oakland has a really bad drug back then, even to to this day. It still exists. And I remember going, uh, stopping with my car to, uh, 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 actually a motorcycle, just to get something out of a grocery store. Mm -hmm. And two guys were selling to cars that were coming up and they were standing at the main entrance. Right there. Of the store. Yeah. So when I, when I, as I'm walking in, they wouldn't even get out of the way. And the one guy saw my gloves, the, my motorcycle gloves on me, and he says, boy, you know, I like to, I like to take those gloves away from you. I mean, it was just plain, ex- exactly. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I looked at him and I said, really? <laughs> I'd like for you to try. Yeah. So when I, I went, I went in the store, I got what I needed, a grocery bag, I'm coming out and they're standing at the door. When I come out standing there, and I literally walked right through them where I hit them both in their mm, shoulders. Yeah, this is, I'm picturing this scene, yeah. You know, yeah. And, and immediately I turned around, and the one guy's getting ready, and he's going to want to fight me. And then the other guy looks at the motorcycle, and he sees the military sticker on the motorcycle. Uh-huh. And he says, yo, back away, back away, this guy's military. And I had this rage inside of me. I was yeah. about to kill these guys. Yeah. I mean, I went into a military combat mode, not so much because they were trying to threaten me, but because there you were selling drugs to people in public, as if you don't care, in front of a grocery store. Yeah. The owner's terrified and won't say nothing or call 911. Yeah. Oh, no. So, and that was in the late 80s. Yeah. You know, I've always been where if we lived in neighborhoods where there was drugs, I got involved with local PD to help put it out, Um, things of that nature. Um, Yeah, it was just, you know, when I got involved in the fire department. Talk to me about that. What what was the, you weren't, were you in the fire department before you went into the military? Was that part of your plan? I went in the military first. Military first and then you came out and And you got the fire department. Got in the fire department. Right, right. And what was the. And the reason why the military first was because I I was in high school. Yeah. I, had, I was in 11th grade, and I had, I, and I was in Pennsylvania at the time. Okay. I had gotten all my credits out of the way. And at that time, my girlfriend was pregnant mm. with our first child. So I had to get a job. Yes. My, princi- <laughs> my principal looked at me, and he said, you know, you've got all the credits you need. You don't have to do your senior year. And I love this guy, Dr. Richard Flannery. Oh. I mean, great principal at the time. Wow. Uh, and he, he said to me, he goes, you know what? Go in the military. And I looked at him and I said, excuse me? He says, if you don't, you're going to have a hard time on the street. He says, you're young, you're a Puerto Rican, and it's you're not going to find good work out here. Right, right. Uh, just from that alone. So I literally left the high school, walked over down to the Army-Navy recruiting station, walked into the, looked at the Marines at first, looked in the Army at first, and I walked into the Navy. I felt right at home. Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, I, the, the Navy recruiter took me from there. I did the test, passed everything, and he took me from there right to my house. Wow. And and my mom's looking at me going, did you get arrested? Right, right, right. official car pulls up. Right, you didn't tell anybody, by no, the way. No, you just no. went. I just went. Yeah. And I came out of the car. My mom's going, are you in trouble? I said, no, no, no. I said, Mom, I joined the military. I said, I need your signature. I'm too young. I think at the time I was like 17 or something like that. I said, uh, they need two things. They need the principal to sign off on the fact that 
I've gotten all my credits, yeah. and they need my parents to sign off. Well, at the time, my mom was a single mom, single parent. Yeah. So my mom signed the papers, and three months later, I was off to boot camp. So what I'm interested in is when you came back from that, obviously, <clears throat> you had experiences, and you, you share as much as you want, but the experiences themselves of being in Desert Storm, right? Yes, sir. What did that do for you as far as just your overall... You know, how did it affect you in terms of? I was. You're different, right? Oh, very much so. Right. Very much so. Yeah. I was fortunate to have been involved in a, in, the, in the medical field, which is different from everybody else. Sure. If you're if you're motor T, you're driving vehicles. If you're driving tanks, if you're a soldier, yeah. There's very specific parameters in your job. No one can train you for death. And the ones that wow. deal more with death are yeah. the medics. Yeah. Because we also we have to try to save you, but then if we can't save you, we have to accept the fact that it wasn't our fault right. that you died. There's a lot of things to process in that. Exactly. In that, in that. As opposed to, I drive a tank, I bring it back, I fuel it, I go home. Right, right. Uh, yeah, it's very uh, military. Yeah. And so <laughs> very for, succinct. For yeah. us, it was, it was uh, I had a choice between a radioman uh, uh, painting ships or being a medic, and I decided to be a medic. Yeah, something just occurred to me. You're you're a helper. Always have been. Yeah. And the reason, and I think it's yeah. a, lot, a lot. My mom was was I was very young. I was probably about nine or ten when I said I want to be a firefighter, and I think she remembered that yeah. because at around the age of twelve, there was a junior firefighter unit attached to a volunteer fire company at, at in Reading, Pennsylvania. Mm. And a friend of mine was in that unit. Wow. And I said to my mom, I want to go to this firehouse and check this out. And she said, okay, go ahead and go. And that night, I was about 12, I joined this firefighter unit. It was a junior, it was like, it was called the Explorer Post 290. And it was like what Boy Scouts is today. Right, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. It's similar to that, yeah. but it's designed around the idea of the fire department. Yeah. yeah. Teach young men and women. Yeah how to do things related to the fire service yep. that ultimately they when they get older they'll want to become either senior volunteer firefighters forever or whatever that's right or become professionals that's right and so that started wow. the baseline so that was it for me i yeah. was involved i'm 12 13 years old hanging out with senior firefighters professional that's very impressionable professional firefighters yeah. i'm sitting at the firehouse yeah listening to calls uh, we weren't allowed at the time to respond to calls on the truck yeah we could run to the call so we could grab our gear and run to this wow. fire. We weren't, out, we weren't allowed to go inside. We were strictly wrapping up hose after yeah. it was done, right. bringing drinks to the firefighters. The right. water canteen was there. And yeah. That's how I started as a little kid. Wow. And, just, and then that turned into joining the military because I saw medical stuff. Yeah. I mean, I was 14 watching a dead body come out of a home yeah. uh, because yeah. I was on scene. Yeah. I was a junior firefighter. You were on scene, yep. And so, for me, it was always the action. It was always about yeah. being the first responder, being yeah. there first yeah. to want to help. So, the military was a perfect fit. Totally. You know, totally. I, I, yeah. could, I, could, I was already taking orders at 14, 15 years old, yeah. 16 years something? old. Yeah. The captain said, do something, I did it. The chief said, do something, I did it. And these were wonderful people that I was growing up with who, at the time, also had alcohol issues. Right. Because firefighters like to drink. So, and there's, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. First responders, police, physicians, people who are involved in very highly stressful, 
situations, necessarily traumatic situations. And again, a group of five firefighters can experience the same trauma right. and everyone has a different long-term response. Exactly. Um, but n nonetheless, because of that experience, because of that real thing that happened, they're going to have, you have to cope with it somehow. And there's, that's just what we do as human beings. We end up having to respond in some way with that feeling or that experience caused in us in some way. I remember many a nights uh, sitting, you know, I love water. I love to be around water. Me too. Period. And I remember when I was stationed at Alameda, Alameda Naval Air Station, mm -hmm. just outside of Oakland. Yep. There was a spot that I used to drive to all the time that it was perfect to sit there and look out the bay. And you see the San Francisco Bay, Oakland yeah, Bay area. I know Alameda, a friend of ours, yeah. has a restaurant there. I mean, I yeah. I almost every night was was out there for yeah. two or three hours looking out. That was my mm. release. Totally. I had no one else to go to. There was yeah. nobody in the 80s yeah. to go and talk to. As a matter of fact, I remember when I was working at Oakland Naval Hospital, my boss came up to me and she said... Uh, at the time, I was helping out with seven departments, and I was working with a, a commander uh, overseeing a bunch of departments. And she said, we need to get a floor ready for incoming patients regarding a specific kind of disease coming mm -hmm. out of San Francisco. Okay. And I said, what, what are you talking about? And she said, it's called HIV. And that's what they're oh. calling it. I said, well, what is that? She said, well, I'm sending a bunch of you guys over to San Francisco General Hospital to learn about this condition uh, and, and ask questions or whatever, because the Navy was really new at that kind of stuff. It was a civilian issue. It wasn't really a military issue at yeah, the time. Right. But they were starting to see numbers coming in yeah. with military people, especially in the Philippines, mm -hmm. for example, yeah. third world countries yeah. where military soldiers were being infected. The, the thinking started to change because... It was known that it was in San Francisco where this started to become prevalent. Yeah. Needles. Yes. Exchanging of needles. Yeah. But also homosexuality. Yeah, that's right. Well, now you've got military soldiers getting infected. So yeah. how did that happen? Okay. Because homosexuality is not was not accepted yeah. in those days. And so then they put two and two together and realized, okay, that it's either got to be sexual in nature or it's mm -hmm. got to be drug related. So our hospital, our command center, uh, was one of the hospitals in the, on the West Coast sure. that was dealing with incoming soldiers that had to have a place to go. Yeah. And they came to Oakland Naval Hospital. And I was watching some of the very few cases of HIVs coming in with soldiers. I was watching these guys coming in. They're okay. They're talking like this. Yeah. And three months later, they're not, they're not responding really well. They're, yeah. they're, they've lost all their weight. There's yeah. nothing we could really do. Yeah. Give them Tylenol, give them aspirin for the pain or morphine yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And six, seven months, eight months later, they're dead. And so I experienced that in that era. Yeah. Um, and then Desert Storm comes along. The beauty about Desert Storm was um, I was always about getting out there as, as much as possible. And I responded to the volcano eruption in the Philippines, Mount Pinatubo erupted in the early 90s. And I was a part of a Marine unit called, uh, it's a Fleet Marine Force unit. They basically respond to situations like that. And I've got pictures I took of all these places. And we evacuated like, thousands and thousands of American uh, civilian people from Clark Air Force Base okay. at the time. And we set up a medical tent 
on the island of Cebu. There's a there's an Air Force base there, a Filipino Air Force base there called Macton Air Base. I'm not sure if it's still there now, but yeah. it was there at the time. Yeah. And we kind of overtook that base, and with their cooperation, we set up a Marine unit for security. I remember having my commander come up to me, and he says, Pablo, I, I got a problem. And, I, and he goes, yes, sir. He says, my Marines stink. What, what do you mean? They need to take showers. We don't have the facilities here for that. You need to come up with a way for these <laughs> Marines to be able to take a bath. Wow. And I'm like, I mean, we're on the open. We're on an airfield. I'm like, okay. So I'm sitting there thinking, how am I going to come up with something? All right. Well, so I, I start putting a design together. And basically, I got some word with people, uh, local word. And we built two towers about, uh, say, 10, 12 feet long. Two regular towers. We got two 55-gallon cans, put them up on top there, cut the openings, ran a pipe across the two, <laughs> filled them with water, and I drilled a hole inside the pipe every three or four feet. And then I took the tallest Marine and the shortest Marine, and I put them together, and I put wood so that when you're in that space, you're covered from here to here. <laughs> And the commander come over and he came here to me and says, my God, that's a pretty... I said, look, I couldn't have done it without the Navy Seabees. I told them what I wanted. They gave me what I wanted and we put it all together. But that's, for me, that's a memory that will never go away. Oh, I my mean, gosh, yeah. Uh, it was, we, we delivered more babies than anything. A lot of the wives from Clark Air Force Base were pregnant. And when that happened... Wives. And when that happened, Mount Pinatubo destroyed half that base. So we had no choice but to go in there get all those civilians out. We had to transport them from the Air Force Base to the island of Cebu. From Cebu, we had to fly them to Guam. From Guam, they flew to San Diego and so on and so forth oh, to get Lord. to the States. Wow. So what it was operation. like this three, four-day, five-day yeah. operation, 24-7. Yeah. Yeah. No one got sleep. No. I didn't sleep for almost three days. Yeah, just getting it done. I remember having, I'm hearing all this barking going on the second night I'm there. I'm like, Who's, who's addressing the animals? And this oh, one lieutenant yeah. comes up to me and says, nobody. I said, well, we need vets. Well, they don't have vets. <clears> so <throat> I got on the horn. I said, we need military vets here. I don't care who they are, but you got to send me somebody. And so these army vets showed up, like three or four of them. And I said, listen, guys, we got all these cats, all these dogs, all these animals. We got a hanger to put them in. And now it's very hot in the Philippines. So a lot of these dogs were getting dehydrated. Oh, yeah. Some of them had heat strokes. Yeah. I mean, it was really oh, bad. Wow. But we had to address that issue over there. So then Desert Storm comes. And uh, it, it, it was it was interesting because uh, while I'm talking, I'll show you this photo. I, I was attached to a unit that um, was kind of on... Stand by at first, and then they sent us in, yeah. so to speak. Right. This is us in the back of a Humvee. We were in the back of a Hummer. Look at that. And we were all oh. medics in that Hummer. And uh, I'm still looking for that waist. So if you see the waist. Yeah, right, right. Okay, exactly. I need, I need that waist right. back. Have you seen this waist? <laughs> I, was about, I was about 180 there. And my height. So I was lean. You were lean. Fast. You were definitely lean. Yep. Swift, silent, and deadly was our motto. Oh, my God. Uh, Look uh, at I, those. That, those are just, that's just character for days. Yeah. That's it, just what I see. Like, that's we, amazing. We, we that were, was amazing. We, we, we had a lot <laughs> going on at that time. 
Um, didn't see much in the sense of you know enemy fire. Yeah, uh, we were close to many of the things that we that were that was going on. Yeah, um, that was mm-hmm. another. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was that was on a naval ship with my marine unit. Um, you know, getting ready, we were getting ready to deploy to the area that they wanted to send us to. Now, how old are you there? Oh, I had to be. I was in my twenties. Okay, for sure. Yeah, I was in my twenties for sure. So, so how long were you in Desert Storm? How long were you over there? Let me see. It was less than a year. Okay. Because it was part of a uh, what's called a Westpac. It was part of, you know, you're going to be over there, but then once we left there, now we're not coming home yet, but we're going to go, like we went to right. Hong Kong, we went to things. Singapore, yeah, yeah. then the, then uh, Mount Pinatubo we walked yeah. in. Yeah. So it was kind of a combination of a lot of things going yeah. on with that unit. When you When that was finished and you came back to the States, or you were in some period of time when there wasn't all that stuff going on after Penatuba was that when it slowed down was that what I think it was around that time I mean the most significant thing about Desert Storm that I distinctly remember even to this day and it's pretty sad was we I was on the uh, a ship called the USS Peleliu it's it's an it's classified as an LHA so it's a landed helicopter amphibious uh, okay it basically takes helicopters off of it, and okay. and it's a marine transport basically. Okay. We had I remember one day distinctively we had um, a helicopter come to deliver the mail, and it was a Sunday. It was either Saturday or Sunday because there wasn't a lot of going on, and I was on top of the the, the deck, playing cards yeah. or dominoes or something with a group of guys. Right. And uh, you can see the helicopter landed. The guys get off. We all wave because we love the mail coming. We can't wait <laughs> right, to, right, right. for the mail to come. Yeah, the mail guys. Right. And so we all go inside to do the mail. And these guys go get chow. And, and we said I said hello to a couple of them that were there. And they're like, oh, we got to go. They're going, they're going to the Lincoln or some other place. So a bunch of us are on the flight deck looking at this helicopter take off. And there's, I think, five or six guys in it. And as it takes off on the deck and the guy's giving it clearance, it starts to turn and all of a sudden goes upside down and crashes in the water. Oh, what the hell? The whole crew is lost. Oh, my God. I mean, I just you shook just, some of these yeah, guys' hands right. in the chow mess yeah. and talking to Moments them. Moments ago, for all intents. I mean, yeah. right. Yeah. And now we're trying to get these guys out of the water. We're bringing them into medical bays. We're... You know, because no one knew exactly what was going on. How did this thing just all of a sudden crash? That was very distinctive to me because now these were guys that I physically met, talked to. Yes. Um, you know, when 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 I after Desert Storm, I was I when I left the military, it was in it was in Camp Pendleton, in Southern okay. California. Sure. And I remember I knew I knew it was my time. I had no problem with it whatsoever. Yeah. Um, I had experienced. Uh, um, a heat stroke. And so I had no choice. I really did not want to stay in the military longer. I knew that it was going to inhibit me going where I wanted to go, yeah. the units I wanted to be attached to. Yeah. So my commanding officer said, okay, you know, we can we can sign the paperwork and for you to leave. Um, when I left, I stayed local for a while, helping out because I was still mentally attached to everything that was still going on. Yeah. Uh, but there was many nights that I... Not for the sake of war, but for the sake of loneliness. That yeah. the withdrawal of loneliness, uh, it just—I didn't know how to handle it. I was in my twenties. 
Yeah, right? I, I really didn't know how to handle no. it. No. Who's I mean, prepared to handle that? How, right. how would you even know you have to handle it? I jumped Just on. I, I, feel remember, it. I remember jumping out of my motorcycle and driving cross country from San Francisco to New York to relocate from the West Coast to the East Coast. And uh, stayed with my brother for a while. And then the fire department came into play and yeah. all that came into play. When you went back to the East Coast, take me back there. Where do you end up? You end up back in Pennsylvania? I end up back in Pennsylvania. Okay. And so it's one of those things where I'm back home, mm -hmm. so to speak, right. where I went to high school, yep. graduated. That's my where first, it started. It's Go to the military. Right, right. That's where right. that was. You were I'm turning actually, to where you actually started. walked into the reserve center and yeah. still met one of the guys that yeah. was there when I was. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was exactly. Yeah. He promoted wow. to chief by then. But, right, but still, there he is. So yeah, and yeah. and so now I'm. I'm wow, home. this is full circles time. Right, I'm home, and now I, what am I going to do with my life? Right. Well, you know what? Let me. You know, go. I was in the fire department already previously to that, uh, uh, and I thought, you know what? Let me let me get involved more. Mm -hmm. Let me get into the medical side. So I stayed in the medical side. So I stayed, uh, uh, worked as a paramedic and stayed working on ambulance, but connected to the fire. Yeah. Working on ambulance, sure. connected to the fire. Exactly. And then one thing led to another, got with the, got in the fire department. I knew at that point I got I had the right career. Yeah, you felt at home. The, to me, it was natural. Yeah. It, you know, you're four guys on a rig. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had guys that I worked with closely in the military. Yeah. And so for me, it was right at home. Yes. And so then I began to experience what I started to experience as a kid growing up yes. in the fire department. But now I'm really, in a, I'm really up front. I'm holding the jugular vein of someone's neck that's just been cut. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, trying to put pressure on their femur. Yes. Uh, and blood is spurting all over me. I'm yes. trying to get someone out of a car accident. Yeah. I'm, I'm experiencing a child dying in my arms and and walking out of a fire having seen a couple kids burned yeah. uh, and that were dead in there. Or, you know, yeah. it, and it yeah. just, over the years, and again, I thank God for my medical training because I understand, it's funny, I was diagnosed with PTSD and that diagnosis came Early on in the military. Okay. Okay. All right. Talking to a doctor who I didn't want to talk to in the first place. Right. Uh, yes. But when we got back from Desert Storm, a lot of, a lot of, it was, uh, they were trying to figure out, uh, it was the psychology and trauma yeah. and that whole new field was trying to figure out about soldiers, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm thinking, well, you know, you have, we have Korea, we have Vietnam, you get enough information from those guys, you know, they're, right. you know, so That's... now Desert Storm comes along and. It wasn't really much of a war, so to speak. Uh, it's unfortunate that many of our deaths on the United States side was friendly fire sometimes yeah. and mistakes, yeah. as opposed to as opposed to firing on enemy yeah. back and forth. That's right. Here I'm talking to a psychologist or a psychiatrist, I believe, uh, after there's a storm in the military. And well, how do you feel? What do you mean how I feel? I'm looking at the guy. Well, what, do you mean, how, what am I supposed to feel? Well, didn't you, you know, didn't you see a bunch of people, you know, this person get shot or that person, you know, accidentally fall or whatever. And uh, like we had one gentleman, a, a truck ran over him and I responded to that call on a ship. And, you know, it was an accident, of course, it, but he passed away, yeah. you know, things like that. And, and I'm like, no, it's a natural course of thing. I didn't cause it. I kept saying I didn't cause that. Yeah, you're not taking it personally is what I hear you saying. 
At the time, I did. Right. Because I didn't know how to take it personally. Yeah. What? Yeah. What context or what perspective do you have at that right. point? Yeah. It wasn't until I got into the fire department, and now I'm the first guy going in. I'm the first guy, you know, firefighters, you know, the police officers run after suspects. Our enemy is fire. We kneel before fire. And most people don't realize that. Yes, reverence. Okay, we don't stand toe-to-toe with fire. We respect the idea that that's fire, and we're entering its territory. So by the by the laws of nature of thermodynamics, right. you're kneeling when you walk into a house. That's very interesting. And so we go in with the analogy that we're going in for combat. Right. Okay, mm. and we see we see the fire. Sometimes we don't. We have to go look for it. Okay, but for the most part, it's hot in there, it's yep. smoky, you yep. can't see nothing, and you're in there on your knees, and you're crawling around, and you're you're doing several things. You're looking for fire, but at the same time, you're looking for victims. Yeah. And so, many a times, I've been the first guy in yeah. on, a, on a truck, on an engine, that's designed to go in and look for victims. Another truck, another engine's coming in behind us to put out the fire. Right. We're going in to just find if there's victims. And you come across someone, and... You know, you got you to gotta get them out. Unless, of course, they're pretty obvious that they're dead, in which case I have to physically see that they are. Check for a pulse or whatever the case may be. And I've come across that and realized, okay, I'm not pulling this guy out because he's obviously dead. And so the police, I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking, when this is all said and done, these investigators are going to want to see the victim. They're going to want to take pictures. That's right. So I have to be mindful not to move anything. Yeah, that's right. Um, but at the same time, your adrenaline's flowing. You're crawling. You're going. You're going crawling over the person. Maybe sometimes. Yeah. Uh, then coming across another person, going into a closet. There's a child in the closet because they ran into the closet and thought they would be safe, and yeah. a smoke inhalation killed them or whatever. Right. So these were issues that eventually began to get personal for me, because now there was a level of maturity. Mm. That I, that personally, I have my own children. So now here comes the perspective and the context and the. I came home to hold my <sighs> kids. Yeah. And yeah. I was so grateful. Totally different. To world. hold my yeah. children, knowing that unfortunately I just left work, and there's a family that's grieving the loss of their five-year-old child. Yeah, they don't get to hug. And, you know, oh, profound. I just, when that, when I could now relate and connect, it became extremely personal. I remember many times walking in and they would say, look, we found somebody in the, in the, in the front bedroom, whatever. And, And I got to a point toward the end of my career where if it wasn't necessary for me to be in that room, I didn't even bother going to look. A lot of guys went to go look because they were curious. Yeah. You know, um, I got to the point, you know what? No. Uh, they're dead? Yeah. Do I need to be there? No. Then I don't need to see it. Because what you see has a huge impact on your psyche. That's right. You don't know what you don't see. You can have an idea, but... Yeah, and you're carrying stuff from... A, and speaking of that, you're carrying a lot of that stuff to tie it back into what you experienced as a child, things that were necessarily imprinting on you. Right. 
over time, you're just accumulating these things. And it's sort of like an, a, a photo album, in a sense. It's just this collection of things that you've seen that leave a real strong impression. Exactly. On you. So, so that I, impression is going to have some effect. On I'm it. the first to admit that yeah. I'm not all there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think anybody really is. Yeah, I would. Uh, yeah, I'd argue. But, but I yeah. think that my perspective. I mean, I, I, I can't even imagine what it's like to be hooked on drugs. Yeah. Uh, uh, nor would I want to. Yeah. But I, but I, but I can understand that whether it's a drug or whether it's a conscious psychic type of connection. Yeah. You're hooked. It is a hook. It, it, it absolutely is a hook. You become a slave to it in a certain sense. Right. But it didn't just happen out of a vacuum. It happened Correct. because of what you've been sharing with us. And my relationship with vodka and cocaine or whatever you had to numb the pain didn't just come out of nowhere. Right. It comes with the territory. It comes with the experience. It comes with the history. It comes with holding the leg of the person who had fallen on the floor right. when you were eight years old or five or whatever, however old you are, being a part of that system and that left an impression on you. And I was, you know, my relationships. Yes, totally. My, my, I, I'm, I'm the first to admit that I had issues. I've, I was previously married. Yeah. Uh, and for me, it was like, okay, I understood that I'm bringing this baggage into this relationship. Oh, yeah. And I tried not to. I know. I wouldn't even say anything at first or, right. or whatever. Exactly. Oh, you're in the military. You know, I mean, I remember my ex-wife and I was married a couple of times before. Yeah. Yep. And I was <clears> like, <throat> you know, and I look back at that now and I realize, gosh, I was so stupid not to bring that out. And I kept it in. I held it in. Yeah. There were many a nights I cried. Yeah. And I cried, you know, while I was married. Yeah. And I would go to my office or my den or wherever it was I read and close the door and I would go through these fits of crying. Yeah. Without understanding exactly why. It's just like a sadness. Yes. Like there's a deep sadness. Oh, yeah. For some reason I'm crying yeah. and I can't seem to figure out why. Yeah. But boy, is this is this oh, intense. Yes, it's, it's very intense. Okay. Yeah. And afterwards, I mean, I hear yeah. my wife tell me, is everything Okay. And I'm like, and I compose for a moment and say, I'm fine, on the phone, be right down. And I had to compose myself yeah. and go wash my face and yeah. get back to normal. Get it back to get and it together. I come downstairs with a headache oh. because I cried so hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's, you know, there are times I do that today. Yeah. It hasn't gone away. Right. It, uh, you know, there are times I find myself where I'm, I'm I'm sitting by myself or whatever, and I'll be in my car, and I'll experience, um, I'll see something. Yeah, you know, something triggers you. I'll, I'll see a, I'll see a little kid inside of a, go, a cart that's looking rough, and uh, the mom is is searching for cans, you know, to yeah. make ends meet and yeah. recycle, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I just I realize this kid is, they probably don't have anything to eat tonight. You know, yeah. and it just, I remember those days yeah. growing up in Brooklyn, New York yeah. with my brother, not having enough to eat, eight of us in the family. Then it was six of us. Then it was five of us. And wow. My mom, a single parent. And, and, you know, 
we had carnation milk, kind yes, of powdered carnation. Yeah. You add water mm. and then you throw it in the cereal. Yeah, right. It was the nastiest thing oh I ever God. had. Yeah. Um, you know, we shared we shared gifts. Yes. Uh, for Christmas right. because there was you just didn't we didn't have anything. Uh, I wore high waters. You know, yeah. things like that. I mean, I buried my mom a week and a half ago, and I had to. We, we had one-on-one time with my mom. Each of us, the, my brother died. Let me, let me back up. I buried my father three years ago. Okay. He died at 71. And it was totally unexpected. I was his only son. My mother was married several times. Yeah. So I, I, I had to go and authorize for him to be taken off the machine. Right. I was the only one capable of doing that. So after spending time with him in the ICU mm. and uh, several days and, and staying in there with him, it, it, I finally said to the doctor, okay, they were waiting for me to make that call. Yeah. And I did. I let my dad go. Then a year and a half later, I buried my brother, my only brother, who had spinal cancer. Wow. I mean, him and I were inseparable. I look at my boys, my six and my 10-year-old. That's how we were, him and I. Yeah. He was slightly, he was about five years old. watching you too. Five years old. Watching you too. Like you were with your brother. He's about five years older than me. Wow. I was Pablo and he was Gabriel. (laughs) Yeah, man. You know, but he was, he was Junior, Raphael. Mm -hmm. And, and we grew up together. And, um, now I'm in a hospital bed laying next to him saying goodbye. And, 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 you know, brother, it's okay. You can go. I mean, He, he had no choice. I mean, he got diagnosed and four years later, he died. Wow. And then my mom. So now my mom comes along. Yeah. She's 84. She lived with me for 10 years. Wow. I had to talk about close. I had the honor to take care of her yeah. for 10 years. Yeah. Okay. And all of a sudden now, she's got multiple problems, medical problems. Yeah. And then at the last minute, they diagnosed her with cancer. Oh, wow. So when I get the call, she's in the hospital. She's sick. I go down. I'm there one week with her. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the hospital room with her. I'm sleeping next to her. Yeah. She's awake. She's talking. I'm talking. And we all, my six sisters and I decided let's all spend as much time as we want one-on-one yeah. with our mom. Yeah. And just talk to her while she's awake and alert and can hear us yeah, and respond. Exactly. So um, I had the opportunity to be the first to <laughs> close the door. Everybody stepped out of the room. Yep. Fine and time. I spent about 45 minutes to an hour yeah. talking to mom. Yeah. And one of the things I had to do was say, I forgive you wow. about the past. Yeah. I said, mom, we didn't have any. Did that come up spontaneously or was that something you planned on doing? No. It just came it was, out. It just came out. Came out. I get to. I'm. I get to do this now. I get, I get to talk to my mom yeah. to say, look, yeah. despite how you raised us, it yeah. was okay. Yeah, I, I came you. out okay. I forgive you, mom. Okay, you wow. did all you could. You did all you could for. Yeah, I mean, she 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 did. She you did know, the best. She's 84 years old, yeah. and I I said, mom, it's okay for you to go. Mm. You know, I said, don't worry about nothing. Don't worry about any. It, it's all perfectly. You did your job. Right. We all came out great. It was extremely hard to have that conversation with my mom. Yeah. 
is the emotionality the same in terms of your in other words were you like focused and present or were you in and out of like crying or was it like when you're in those situations because you talked about your father your brother now your mother what i'm getting at is it different because of what you've gone through that you can deal with that in a way that's different than you do when other people are when you're helping other people that aren't your family do you see what i'm saying it's very different right it's very different yeah right now i'm not showing you the emotion yeah that i'm feeling inside sure because i'm a professional right and i've learned how to hide it yes to be honest uh, understood okay. absolutely um, later tonight that may change, that for, may change. for me yeah 15 20 minutes yeah. i may have to go for a walk yeah and just, just vent a little bit and i'll mm-hmm. cry a little bit and then i'll did you always know how to do that <clears throat> no how no. did you learn how to do that like where did that come along in your story where it was like somebody said or you read or you talked my music to... i i've always enjoyed playing music i've yeah. always enjoyed playing piano yeah I don't read music, yeah. but I can sit down at a piano and play. And I, I remember being in hotels and places where I just, I just went down and just played the piano. Yeah. And what I was feeling is what I was playing. Yeah. And I would get people sometimes that would hear it and go, "Wow, that's beautiful. What is that?" And you're like, and I'm like, I have no idea. I'm just playing it right now. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, "Excuse me." Yeah. And I, and as and as I began to do that, I realized that God had given me a gift. Mm to express myself through music in a way that it helps for me to heal. Yeah. Helps for me to heal. And Uh, and others who hear it. And, 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 you know, I've been through so much, not just military, not just fire, but even personally. Yeah. I've experienced my, I've experienced things personally. I wouldn't even want my art enemy to ever experience. Yeah. I hear you. Personally, yeah, and and um, just a life that today, when I go back and I think about the last twenty years, yeah. okay, mm-hmm. and I look back and I go, I can't believe I survived. Yeah, that I'm still alive. In other words, I can't believe I haven't taken my own life yet. Yeah, I mean seriously. Yeah, I, I mean. When people ask me, so I, I remember speaking to some psychiatrist about this, and, and they asked me, well, did you ever try to commit suicide? And I said, sure. Multiple times. Yeah. And they go, what do you mean? And I go, yeah, I've sat, I've sat there thinking about it. I, I've sat there knowing that I have a fully loaded nine millimeter, four feet away from me. Wow. You know, and something held me back. Yeah. Something, something said, this is not the way for you to go. And those were processes when I got out of the military. I remember distinctively when I got out of the military, this was it. I got to end my life. This, I can't deal with civ- civilian world. I was used to military. Yeah. Now I'm a civvy, they call it. Civvy, yeah. You know? that, yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. it was extremely hard to make that transition. Yes. And many a times I had a loaded nine millimeter not too far away from me where I was thinking, you know what, let me put my uniform on and just go. Wow. Are you a man of faith? Yes, I am. Uh-huh. Very much Do you think so. that was a part of it? Oh, that was definitely a part of it. Yeah. I've always been a man of faith. Yeah. I've always believed that God exists. I've yeah. always believed that. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it, it, what's the alternative? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I, I've, I've, 
I've thought about it. Oh my God, so much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, I look at it this way. Yeah. I would rather be, I would rather err on the side of yeah. believing yeah. and then find out later, okay, it wasn't true. But that's okay. Then to err on right. the side of not believing yeah. and all of a sudden you, you're yeah. dead. The, the thing for me is, <coughs> is, is that on that point, because I think it's really important because I know for me that my sustained change or my sustained difference from who I was before is I had a drug of solution to deal with my pain and to deal with my traumas and to deal with whatever it was that I was going through. The reason why I'm still here is because I believe in something greater than myself. Right. Without a doubt. I don't talk about it a lot. Right. It's so personal, but it is absolutely everything yeah, yeah. in terms of how I get through the moments where I'm like, you know what? I think I'm just going to go. <laughs> like not, I think I'm just gonna go. I hate religion, and I don't know where I'm going, but I don't. I don't want to be here. I don't like religion. <laughs> yeah. I don't like theology. Yeah. I don't like religion. There's other people that want to do that. That's fine. Yeah. There are people that want to study how the grass grows, and there are people who just want to mow it. Okay, exactly. And move on. Right. Exactly. No. I, I, absolutely. <laughs> and I'm one of those. Yeah. I'm one of those that. Yeah. God exists. Yes, his son is Jesus Christ, and I believe that. Yeah. And yes, I know I'm a sinner, and I know that I'm never going to be an angel, right. and I wasn't put on this earth to do uh, many things. Yeah. But I always realized he put me on. I'm here. Yeah. To help people. Yeah. Now, how do well, I? Do there's that? no doubt about that. Right. So how do I do that? And so my whole career has been centered around servant leadership, mm -hmm. which is my. You know, when I got my master's, I got it as I got a master's degree in uh, it's called Masters of Strategic Leadership okay. out of Beautiful. Robbins Wesleyan College. It's Love a it. Christian college mm -hmm. in upstate New York. Okay. I was led to that. Spiritually, yeah. I was led to that. Because yeah. I was thinking of an MBA. Yeah. Then this came along and yeah. I realized, wait a minute, this is all about serving. Yeah. This is a master's designed around serving leadership. Yeah, I love that. Which a lot of companies don't even understand what that is. Are you, absolutely they don't. And so I got my master's on yeah. that and I'm considering doing my PhD at some point in oh, the future on that I love it. because I want to <clears throat> teach people that there's a difference between leaderships and people want to have authoritarian leadership or yeah. whatever. I'd rather serve and lead. I'm, yeah. I'm the guy that says, look, we need to go forward. Follow me. Right. Not you go first and let me see how it, how it works out. Right. Okay. No, you're... I'm going to be in front. You're first in. I'm going to be the first in. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's just part of who you are. That's your temperament. That's what... And for some reason, all my yeah. life, I've been drawn to certain movies yeah. that I know affect me yeah. so much personally. Yeah. Well, they make me cry, but I watch them... Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> because it keeps me in tune. Okay with the reality of how delicate life really is. Yes. You obviously know that. Um, Very intimately. So when I watch certain kinds of military movies, yeah. my wife always says, why do you keep watching? But I think that's interesting, Pablo, because you said something and you said, it keeps me in tune. That is like, that to me, that sounds like self-care. That sounds like, that sounds like mental fitness. That sounds like, a really cool way to say that's how I take care of myself. It keeps me in tune with the humanity of who I am. Of who you are. My yeah. existence. And why it matters. Ex why, why it matters to me. Yeah. My existence. Yes. So when I look at, you know, I did, I was fortunate to do a musical 9-11 CD. 
and in that um, the songs are specific to what I was feeling. That's right. And one of the songs I had was called Goodbye. And that song was written before 9-11. But after 9-11, it, it became very handy. Yeah. It was and, and even more so, when I look back and I think, why did I write that song? Yeah. Well, my sisters didn't know I wrote that song. So during my mom's memorial and funeral preparations, mm. they were talking about the kind of music to play in the church. And I said, <laughs> I think I have a song <laughs> yeah. that you guys might like. Yeah. And I didn't tell them anything. And I took this DVD and I put it into a player. And my sisters were sitting there crying. Oh, my God. Listening. And, and they, said, did they know at that point? Did they know it was you? They, they, they realized They were like, it. oh, that's Pablo. They realized yeah, it yeah. after what, you know. Yeah. And they, they just looked at me and said, that's the song to play for mom's funeral. And and in my heart now I know, okay, if that was the only reason why I wrote it, how can there not be a God? Oh, no. As far as I'm concerned. No, totally. You know, I mean, everything's in motions, everything's in steps, but, but yeah, I'm, 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 I'm grateful. Yeah. I'm very, very grateful and fortunate and blessed that I get to meet people like yourself, like your wife. You know, that are out there looking at how to make life better. You know, yeah. I, it, it's interesting that here, here I am, what I, what I would say is the latter part of my life yeah. that I'm now working into. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and when I say that is because, yeah, I mean, if you look at the first 25 years or whatever, and then yeah. you look at the second 25 years or so ever, yeah. now you're looking at the last one. I mean, if you, you are, at, that's right. If, if you look at 70, statistically, right. That's that right. males die. I think before about that 80. all the time. I know. Yeah, males die before eighty. That's right. Wives always last longer. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm looking at this the last the section, last, last quarter, the last quarter yeah. of my life, yeah. and I'm looking at now, and I'm going, what can I do now? Yeah. For my children, legacy, legacy, legacy building. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. in a way that lasts beyond these generations. Yeah. Not just the first generation yeah. I'm going to touch. Not just my children, yeah. but their children's children. Yeah. And uh, financially, yeah. it's not just about no, being that's able part to of the provide financial yeah. for my children. Yeah. I have over ten grandchildren. Yeah. I have eight of my own children. Okay, and over ten grandchildren. Yeah. So I look and I go, cool. okay, when I die, what can I leave my grandchildren's grandchildren? How are they going to be able to say this was great, great <laughs> Grandpa Pablo? Grandpa Pablo. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just like the family that can look at the Ford or the Carnegies yeah. or yeah. the legacies of those dynasties and say, you know what? I came from nothing. That doesn't mean I'm going back there. And so, and that's a huge mental shift. Yeah. From oh, big time. From serving to leading to leaving a leadership legacy. That, that, you know, I, I think I will have succeeded. Yeah. When it comes to me in heaven. Yeah. That one of my great, great grandkids. Yeah. Read one of my journals. Yes. Heard one of my musics. Yeah. Song and said, I want to be like. That's beautiful. Like him. I, I, I think that. that's when I can finally say then I've done my part on this earth. That's a beautiful sentiment. What's next? Yeah. I think that's a really good place to end. I mean, I don't want to end, trust me. 
I could go on, I could talk to you for hours more because there is more. But I think what I'd like to say, first of all, is thank you so much for getting on the bus. We really, really appreciate it. There was an instant kinship. I felt something when I met you. You just have that, whatever that is. And I couldn't be more grateful or appreciative of you coming on here and sharing your story. And I can't wait to... uh, to see what you do next. And I kept thinking, speaking of what next, I kept thinking, did Pablo have a book in him? Is there a book? There's gotta be a book in there with the combination of everything that you've been through, everything that you've learned, not only about humanity itself outside of yourself, but your own humanity. I mean, I, I, would, I would be personally grateful to read that book. I'm working on it. All right. That's what I wanted to hear. I'm working on it. So, Everybody, thank you for joining us again on, on, on the Get on the Bus podcast brought to you by Wide Wonder as well as Eating Recovery Center and Insight Behavioral Health, which have been kind enough to help us on our journey to go out there and talk about and meet people who have incredible stories of overcoming and, 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 and living uh, an inspired life. That's, that's what I learned from you today. It was an honor to be here. Thank I you for the invitation. It. You're welcome.